Turn with me in your copy of God's Word to the Gospel of Matthew once again. As we continue to work through the Sermon on the Mount and find ourselves this morning in Matthew chapter 5, verse 4. As you turn there, I, I want to start our time with a difficult question. A question that perhaps we don't really want to talk about, but one that this text is going to lead us to think deeply about today. What moves you to tears? What, what brings grief to your soul? I, I would say that we would all agree that the, the loss of a loved one would certainly bring grief. We have all in here experienced that loss. Some, it's closer than others at the moment. But what about, what about the tears of perhaps one of your children, parents, who has been betrayed or lied to or taken advantage of by a friend? Does that bring you to tears? Does it cause grief? Perhaps the decisions of a loved one brings grief to your life. What about the devastation that we see in Haiti? Those who have lost lives, those who have lost everything but their life. Does that move you to tears? Or the atrocity in Afghanistan? Does that cause grief in your heart? As we see the cruelty, the violence, the death, the brutality, the chaos. Do you grieve for your brothers and sisters in Christ who are being tracked down, their phones examined for evidence of any app bearing Christianity that they might be killed. Let me ask you one more. Does your own sin ever bring grief to your heart? The presence of sin and rebellion and brokenness does it ever cause you to grieve? Does it ever cause you to mourn, to, to weep? See, all of, all of the questions that I just asked you, all of them deal with brokenness. All of them deal with areas of our lives that indeed should bring mourning, should cause grief. But all of those are rooted in the doctrine of sin. They're all a result of the brokenness and the rebellion that sin brings and is caused by. And so the question, ultimately, when we think about grief and we think about mourning, it has to come ultimately down to the question of sin, a spiritual question. Do we mourn over our own sin? That's what this text will force us to ask this morning. There in the Gospel of Matthew Jesus sits down to his disciples. They come to him. Verse 2, he opens his mouth and he, it says he taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Would you pray with me? Father, we come to you this morning. And God, I, I pray that, God, you would teach us more about the seriousness of our own sin. 
God, we, we know well the many things in this world that cause grief and mourning and sorrow. And God, many of us come just as we just sang, God, from sorrows deep we call. But God, we look to you for comfort. And we look to you for hope, and for peace, for grace, and salvation. So God, would you bless us as we study your holy word this morning. We ask these things in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, our Savior. Amen. As we jump back into the Sermon on the Mount, I, I remind you this morning that the Sermon on the Mount is Jesus teaching about the characteristics of his people. So these characteristics, these traits are simply who we are. And as such, Jesus says, as these people, as his followers who are poor in spirit and now who mourn, we are blessed. Now, when we, we read through this, we've mentioned briefly, but we read through the Sermon on the Mount and we continue to go specifically through the Beatitudes, we see that, that these things really flip upside down the world's understanding of blessing because we read that the poor in spirit, the mourners, the meek, those who are hungry and thirsty for righteousness, those who are merciful, pure in heart, peacemakers, and persecutors are the ones who are blessed. And those are radically different from what the world would say brings blessing. We understand, though, that Jesus is not speaking to the world he's speaking to his followers and as we work through these what you're going to see and you'll see for the first time perhaps this morning is that these are not eight random statements where Jesus is just pulling statements randomly out of the air and going you know what um blessed are the poor in spirit yeah blessed are the poor in spirit for they'll inherit the, the the kingdom of heaven and you know what on on another thought totally random um blessed are those who mourn for they'll they shall be comforted Jesus is not just plucking things out of the air. These beatitudes are tied to each other and progressively build off of one another so that we understand that we talked about the, the blessed is the poor in spirit was what? It was dealing with not the one who is impoverished that financially is in a place of need, but the one who is poor in spirit, who is spiritually impoverished, that is aware of his or her spiritual need, spiritual poverty, spiritual bankruptcy. That we understand that as the poor in spirit, we fully need Jesus Christ. We're, there's nothing that we bring to him. We don't bring anything to the table. We don't bring our deeds. We don't bring our personality. We don't bring our skill set. We don't bring our business or our bank account. We simply come to him and we need Christ. We need him. We fully need him. We are fully impoverished. Now, what we see from that is that when we understand that, when we understand that we are absolutely needy of Christ, we are absolutely poor in spirit, that when we see that and behold that, it leads to a mourning over our own sin. That I don't look at that and go, oh, I'm poor in spirit. Well, that's no big deal. No, I look at it and go, wow, anything that I would offer to him is, is tainted and marred by sin. I'm a rebel. I need Christ and there's nothing I can bring to him there's nothing I have to to give and say look here here God I'm this makes me worthy I don't have it I can't do that and because of that I see instead I see my sin I see my rebellion I see my failure to live as he's called me to live and it should bring mourning it should bring grief you see all people experience mourning at some level Believers and unbelievers alike would experience the, the mourning and the grief of the loss of a loved one. 
at, at some level. I think everyone who looks and they see the news and they see Haiti, they're going to look and they're going to see some sort of grief. They're going to have some, some compassion on the people and their plight. But Christians in particular are those who not only mourn over the physical loss in the world, the relational loss that we experience. But we are those who look and we behold our sin and we mourn over our sins. We grieve over our sinfulness. So when we see mourning, it does not just speak to, in verse 4, it does not just speak to the, the, the experience of grief over a loss that we might have. It would certainly include that, but it's not limited to it. It goes deeper into the understanding of a mourning, a spiritual mourning over our sinfulness. There, there's two passages of Scripture that I would point you to to help us clarify this. One is Isaiah 61, uh, verses 1 through 4. The, the, the prophet Isaiah speaks this. This is speaking of the Messiah. He says in, in chapter 61, verses 1, through four of Isaiah, he says, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, and the opening of the prison to those who are bound, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all who mourn, to grant to those who mourn in Zion, to give them a beautiful headdress instead of ashes, the oil of gladness instead of mourning, the garment of praise instead of a faint spirit, that they may be called oaks of righteousness, the planting of the Lord, that He may be glorified. They shall build up the ancient ruins. They shall raise up the former devastations. They shall repair the ruined cities and the devastations of many generations. Do, do, you, do you understand what's going on here? This is the text. Do you remember in Luke 4? We've talked about this before. Do you remember in Luke 4, Jesus walks in the tabernacle. We talked about this a couple weeks ago. We were talking about the poor in spirit. Or I guess that was last week. Jesus walks in the tabernacle. He opens the scroll of Isaiah and he flips to, or comes to, I always say flips. You don't flip a scroll, do you? Uh, he comes to Isaiah 61 and he reads this text and he says, this is fulfilled in your hearing today. This is me. The Messiah, I am the Messiah, he says. And the Messiah, what is the Messiah going to do? Verse 2, he is going to comfort all who mourn. He's going to comfort all who mourn. He comes to do what? To bring good news to the poor. And now in the Beatitudes, he's sitting in the Beatitudes down and he's teaching. He says what? Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. When we look to Isaiah 61, we don't look to Isaiah 61 and go, wow, the, the Messiah is going to come and, and he's just bringing good news to the financially poor and those whose heart does not function correctly, it's broken, and those who are sitting in prison because they've broken the law, and those who need favor, and, and those who are just sad. We look and we read that text and we understand that he is speaking on a spiritual level that the Messiah is going to come and and and. Free those who are enslaved. Free those who are in prison to sin. Comfort those who are mourning. Those who are poor. He proclaims good news. He is speaking on a spiritual level. And Christ here is teaching the same. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Another text that, that helps us to understand the spiritual aspect of this is, is the kind of the parallel passage to, to Matthew 5 found in Luke 6. 
where, where Jesus sits down in Luke 6, in verse 21. He says, Blessed are you who are hungry now, for you shall be satisfied. Blessed are you who weep now, for you shall laugh. Now, in Luke, Luke records that not only did Jesus speak blessing in this moment, he also spoke woe. And so down in verse 25 of the same chapter, he says, Woe to you who are full now, for you shall be hungry. Woe to you who laugh now, you shall mourn and weep. Again, we come to that and we don't look at that and go, Oh, wow, we should never laugh. If we laugh, we're going to mourn. No, we don't, we don't read that. We understand that he is speaking on a spiritual level. That those who weep now will be brought to a time where they laugh. Those who laugh now shall mourn. It's a contrast that Jesus is speaking to. And the reality is, is that we live in a world that's filled with those who laugh at sin. Who make a mockery of those who grieve over sin. But the day will come when those who grieve over sin will be brought to laughter. And those who laugh at sin will be brought to grief and mourning over that sin. I was reading this morning from J.C. Ryle, and J.C. Ryle uh, talks about, in, in, a, in another passage, talking about Lazarus, the, the beggar, the, the poor beggar, and he says that, that death is the moment when you walk into death, there is no more questioning about sin and its reality. In that moment, you know everything to be true that the Word of God has said, and in that moment, it is in your face and starkly true to you. In that moment, Those who laugh at sin will be mourning. In that moment when they are faced with the judgment of God, if they stand outside of Christ, mourning or laughter is turned to mourning. Oh, but for the believer, the mourning that we experience is turned to rejoicing and turned to laughter. Matthew 5, 4, Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. And this speaks deeply to those who mourn over their sin. So how do we mourn over sin? What does that look like? There's three areas, three ways that we experience mourning over sin. Here's the first one. Is that as believers, we should mourn over the effects of sin in the world. We should mourn over the effects of sin in the world. Romans 8, 18 to 23, Paul talks about how the whole creation is groaning, groaning because of sin. Sin has marred all aspects of creation. And so these reasons that we commonly mourn, the catastrophic catastrophic events, death, terminal diseases, illnesses, all of these things that would cause us to mourn are all results of sin. And so kind of the theological truth that we need to remember at this point is that all of these things that we look to, we look to death and we look to loss and we look to relational brokenness and, and, and just trials and tragedies. We look to what's going on in Afghanistan. And the truth is that all of these are rooted in man's sin. They're all tied to man's sin. It's not like they function outside and sin is just something we talk about in church. But sin lies at the root of all the brokenness and all that is wrong in the world. So you look and you go, what is wrong? What is going on? Well, what's wrong and what's going on is that sin is marred and all of creation is longing and groaning for the redemption that is in Christ in the end. So we mourn not only for the lost experience, not only for what is very visible and painful, but we mourn because of the sin that caused it. So when we see those things, we should be reminded of the consequences of sin. We should be reminded that sin impacts, that all mourning has a spiritual dimension. 
Sin is serious. It's serious. It's something that impacts every one of our lives and has marred all of creation. Second, the second area we should mourn over sin is that we should mourn over those who are living in sin around us. We should mourn over those who are in sin. In, in Psalm 119, verses 136, the psalmist says, My eyes shed streams of tears. You know why? Because people do not keep your law. He says, he, he says My eyes shed streams of tears because they don't keep your law. He's filled with tears. Paul, Paul says something similar in Philippians 3, verse 18 and 19. He says, For many of whom I have often told you and now tell you, even with tears, walk as enemies of the cross. Their end is destruction. Their God is their belly and their glory, and they glory in their shame with minds set on earthly things. You notice Paul doesn't say, for many, I have often told you and now tell you with a really angry heart, they walk as enemies of the cross. What's their problem? Their ends destruction, their gods, their belly, they glory in their shame with minds set on earthly things. What's wrong with them? Don't they understand? No. Paul is grieved over this. He tells them with tears. He looks and he sees the plight of his world and it brings him to grief, to mourn over the sins of others. Or Luke 19, verse 41 to 44, and the parallel passage in Matthew 23, verse 37 to 39, is the moment where Jesus looks over the city of Jerusalem and weeps over David's city. He weeps. Have you ever seen the painting? You should find that painting. Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem. It's a picture of Jesus sitting on a mountain looking over Jerusalem. A beautiful depiction of Jesus looking over and weeping over the sins of his people. Listen, we have a choice. You and I have a choice. When we look out and we see the sins of the world, you turn the TV on and you watch the news, or you read the newspaper, or you hear people talking, you have a choice. You can, you can either scoff at and look with scorn and mockery at those individuals. You're brought to anger and frustration. Or you can be moved to grieve over the sin that is so deceived and ruled over them. It's easy to follow the flesh. The flesh is going to lead us to, to just laugh about it, gossip about it, complain about it, grumble about it, slander people, and compare ourselves to those in sin. That we would lift ourselves up. That we would magnify ourselves and go, well, look, I'm not like that. That's not how I live. I live a much better life than they do. I'm making a lot better choices than they're making. Or we can be led by the Spirit, which would lead us to mourn and intercede on their behalf. So which one is it? Which one are you led to do more? I'm not saying there isn't ever a time that sin should anger us. I do believe there's times when we see we see just rampant rebellion against God and, and, and abuses of people and, and tragedy. I, I think that should stir us to, to, to anger. In that anger, we must not sin. But that anger should never be void of a grief over the brokenness of sin and the rule of sin in other people's lives. There should be a mourning and a grief over that sin that would lead us to intercede on those people on their behalf. 
the Christian should mourn over the sins of others. And should be led to not just sit there, but to proclaim the forgiveness and hope that is found in Jesus Christ. That's where it should lead us. That's where it should direct us. I'm reminded at that point in, in 2 Corinthians 7. I don't know if you want to flip there, but 2 Corinthians 7, we don't have time to unpack this. It's a, it's a passage and we deal with sin, we deal with repentance. It's so important. 2 Corinthians 7, starting in verse 5. Paul, Paul you, you may know the church at Corinth had many, many struggles, many uh, areas in which they were rebelling against God. And in the midst of that rebellion, Paul addresses them. And he calls them to task. He calls them out for their sin calls them to repent the first letter is filled with with paul speaking very bluntly about sin in their lives as best we can understand scholars believe that there is another letter that paul wrote to the corinthians of the lost letter between first uh, corinthians and second corinthians it was another hard letter that he wrote to the church at corinth calling them to repentance and he gets word and that word comes back and it brings comfort to him listen to what he says starting in verse 5 of chapter 7 For even when we came into Macedonia, our bodies had no rest, but we were afflicted at every turn, fighting without and fear within. But God, who comforts the downcast, comforted us by the coming of Titus. And not only by his coming, but also by the comfort with which he was comforted by you. As he told us of your longing, your mourning, your zeal for me, so that I rejoice still more. For even if I made you grieve with my letter, I do not regret it, though I did regret it, for I see that the letter grieved you, though only for a while. As it is, I rejoice, not because you were grieved, but because you were grieved into repenting. For you felt a godly grief, so that you suffered no loss through us. For godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief produces death. For see what earnestness this godly grief has produced in you, but also what eagerness to clear yourselves, what indignation, what fear, what longing, what zeal, what punishment. Do you see what Paul's doing? Paul is so concerned with the sins of others, it moves him to grief, it moves him to struggle. He, he, is, he is downcast, but God brings comfort, and God brought comfort through who? Through Titus. Why? Because Titus brings him word back of God's uh, God working in the life of the, of the Corinthian believers, that they have repented, that they showed godly sorrow, and that that grief led them to repentance that resulted in salvation without regret. And so he's comforted by that. And Paul says, listen, I know that my letter grieved you, and I don't regret it. That's no big deal to me. I'm actually glad, not because I made you grieve. That's not my intent, but that, that my intent was that you would come to repent and come closer to God. And it happened. And so I rejoice in that. You were grieved to the point of repenting. Paul was so concerned. He was so concerned with the lives of others and the sin in their lives that it led him to call them to repentance, to come to them and intercede on their behalf so that they might mourn their own sin. And repent. And that is exactly what our third area of repentance is that the believers should should repent or, or mourn over. The third area that we should mourn over is that we should mourn over our own personal sin. 
at the core of Jesus' teaching in Matthew 5, 4 is this idea that, we, the poverty, that those who are poor in spirit would be led to mourn over their own sin. It's exactly what, what Paul expresses. We see the precedent in Scripture of godly men and women repenting of their sin because they mourn over it, they grieve over it. We, we don't see a picture in Scripture of a man of God just walking around indifferent to his sin, like it's no big deal, never thinking about his sin. We don't see that in Scripture. What we do see are things like in Romans 7, 24 to 25, where, where Paul's wrestling with his sin, and he says, I don't understand my own actions. This is verse 15. For I do not do what I want, but I do everything that I hate. Now, if I do what I do not want, I agree with the law, for that is good. So now it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. For I know that nothing good dwells in me. That is in my flesh, for I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. For I do not do the good I want. The evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. Now, if I do what I do not want, it's no longer I who do it, but it's sin that dwells in me. There's this turmoil, this battle that Paul's confronted with every morning when he wakes up and he looks at his sin, he's grieved over his sin, he mourns it, he says, God, why? Why? The things I want to do, I don't want to sin, but I keep finding myself in there. And he gets down to verse 24, he says, wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? I'm, I'm wretched. This is the Apostle Paul saying, I'm wretched, I'm a sinner. Who's going to deliver me? I can't help myself. Oh, verse 25. Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. Who's going to deliver him? Christ is going to deliver him. Who helps us in the grief of our sin? Christ helps us. It's the same thing we see. We see the same thing in in Psalm 51 where David is confronted with his sin with Bathsheba. He doesn't go, oh, well, this is no big deal. I'm the king, no problem. No, instead, he's confronted with his sin. He cries out to God, have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy. Blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin for I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before you against you and you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment he's crying out to God what about the the prodigal son do you remember that example when he finally comes to his senses what does he say he says I'm going to return and I'm going to look at my father and I'm going to say father I have sinned against heaven and before you I'm no longer worthy to be called your son treat me as one of your hired servants or what about David in, in Psalm 130 where he says out of the depths i cry to you O lord O lord hear my voice let your ears be attentive to the voice of my pleas for mercy if you O lord should mark iniquities O lord who could stand but with you there's forgiveness that you may be feared i wait for the lord my soul waits and in his word i hope my soul waits for the lord more than watchmen in the morning more than watchmen in the morning oh israel hope in the lord for with the lord there is steadfast love and with him there is plentiful redemption he says oh he will redeem israel from all of his iniquities david cries out he laments his sin but he looks to christ for hope he looks to christ for redemption he knows that in god is plentiful redemption the precedent is clear in scripture our sin should move us to mourn 
We should look in the mirror and we should see our sin and we should mourn over our sin. If that is not present in your life, if you never look to your sin and are led to grieve over it and mourn over it, that needs to be this giant red flag waving in your face and smacking you in the forehead saying, wake up, wake up. There is something wrong. There's something amiss. You need to come near. You need to hear the plea of James in James chapter 4 verse 8 where he says, draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners. Purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord and he will exalt you. James looks at the people and says, you need to know your own sin. You need to see your sin, and you need to draw near to God. You who laugh and you mock and you just go about life not worried about it, like sin is no big deal, you need to mourn and weep, he says. Be wretched, mourn, weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before God. Humble yourselves before the Lord. And what does it say? He will exalt you he will lift you up draw near to god and he will draw near to you if you are a believer who is wallowing in sin come back to god draw near to god and he will draw near to you let your laughter be turned to mourning be wretched and weep humble yourself before the lord and he will exalt you please please weep over your sin why wouldn't you have you ever wondered that Have you ever looked at a brother or sister and seen them just wallowing in sin and just shake your head and you pray for them day after day after day after day and they just won't turn from their sin. It's entangled them. It's got a grip on their lives. Or maybe you're there now. Maybe that's you. Maybe you're in a spot where you're, you're thinking, man, I don't like this. I'm ready to leave. Would you please be quiet so I can go eat lunch? I don't like it. I'm in sin. Why? Why would you not walk out of it? I think one of the, one of the reasons is this, is that, that we bought the lie that my sin doesn't hurt anyone. My sin doesn't hurt anyone else. It's just, it just has to do with me. It doesn't hurt those around me. That's a lie. That, that's a lie that leads you to fail to see the impact that it has on your family to those who look up to you, to the testimony of Christ and the testimony of God who calls you to live holy because He is holy. If, if you've bought into that lie, you, you've missed the reality that sin is just like a stone that's dropped in the middle of a pond. It has a ripple effect that affects everything around it. The second reason I think people just wallow in sin and they don't walk out of it is that, that we think other Christians will look down on us if we return. I'm, I'm too far gone. If I return, everybody's going to look at me and just shake their head and go, I can't believe that guy. But do you remember what happens when the prodigal son comes home? He doesn't even get to say everything. The father goes and embraces him. They throw a party. They rejoice. Listen, if you're that sinner, if you're that one who is entangled in sin and you're saying, you know what, I can't. I can't come back because people wouldn't listen. They wouldn't accept me. They would look down upon me. If that's you, then come home. Come home. Remember, remember that the people of God love you, that we are sinners just like you, and we experience and need the mercy and grace of God just like you. So come back. Come home. The third, 
third reason, I think, is that we, we submit to a particular sin's power over us. If you're a believer and you're entangled in sin, that means you have willingly submitted to that. We don't have time today, but go home this afternoon and read Galatians 5, 1 to 13. Or Romans 6, 1 to 14. It talks about the freedom that we have in Christ. And then that if we are not walking in freedom in Christ, if we're walking in the dominion of sin as a believer, that's because we have willingly submitted ourselves to something that has no mastery over us. The fourth reason is I think sometimes we're more focused on the consequences of sin than we are on the one whom we are sinning against. You know what that leads us to do? It leads us to this idea that, you know what, as long as no one knows about it, it's no big deal. <laughs> as long as I don't get caught, there's no problem. That's a lie from the pit of hell. Because you're focused on the result. You're not focused on the one who you're sinning against. Open your eyes and behold the holy God. Again, I plead with you, if you're in this spot today, if you're deceived by sin, you're entangled in it, then draw near to God. Cleanse your hands in the blood of Christ. Purify your heart in His mercy and grace. Your sins are many, but what? His mercy is more. Do you remember what the psalmist said in Psalm 130, verse 7? Do you remember? He cries out. He, he's grieving over his sin. What does he say? Oh, Israel, hope in the Lord. For with the Lord there is steadfast love, and with Him is plentiful redemption. Plentiful redemption. Take the hard step. Reach out to someone you know cares about you and loves you. If you're entangled in sin, reach out to a pastor. Reach out to your Sunday school teacher. Reach out to a man or a woman of God who you know is walking with the Lord and who would come alongside you and help you and hold you accountable and just pray with you and intercede on your behalf. Take that hard step. It is a hard step. It is. But it's one that you will not regret. You will not regret it. We close our time with a beautiful assurance that Jesus speaks to us. Blessed are those who mourn. Why? For they shall be comforted. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. This is a statement of present blessing anchored in future hope. It's present blessing. Blessed are those who mourn anchored in future hope. Listen, Ecclesiastes 3, 4 says what? There is a time to mourn and what? A time to dance. There's a time to mourn and a time to dance. You know what the, pleasant, or the present blessing is? The blessing that we have in Christ? You remember we talked about Romans 7 where Paul's got this struggle with sin. He's confronted, he's grieving over it, he's mourning over his sin. He says, wretched man that I am, who will save me from this body of death? And he says, thanks be to God through Jesus Christ my Lord. Do you know what his next thought is? Romans 8.1, he says, There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. What did he do? By sending his Son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us, who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. Listen, you believer, follower of Christ, you have the, pleasant, or the, the, the present blessing and the certainty that Christ has already done what you could never, can never, and will never be able to do. He has re- met the righteous requirement of the law. 
He has done what the law weakened by the flesh could not do. He's done that on your behalf. He canceled the debt of sin by nailing it to the cross, it says in Colossians 2. He canceled it. The debt that you had to pay, that I had to pay, he has canceled it by nailing it to the cross. Your sin has been dealt with. The penalty has been paid. That is a present blessing. You grieve and you mourn over sin. You confess that sin to God and you do so with the understanding that God is a gracious and merciful God who has paid the price for your sin, believer. The future comfort is what? The future comfort is Revelation 21, verse 1 through 4. We meditated on part of it. Revelation of John, God gave this vision to John, this glimpse of heaven. It says, then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. Now listen, he will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. Listen, sin will be no more. Sin will be no more. I'm on the screen. Sin will be no more. What will happen in that moment? In that moment we come, we stand before God in glory. Not only are we freed from the penalty of sin, but we are freed from the power, the presence of sin. It is nowhere. There is no tear in our eyes. There is no death. There is no mourning, crying, or pain. Why? Because the former things have passed away. And we stand in the presence of God Almighty. So we look forward in anticipation of that day. We may grieve over sin. Listen, I grieve over my sin. I hope you grieve over your sin. I pray that you grieve over your sin. But in the midst of that grief, in the midst of that mourning, we know the blessed assurance that Jesus is mine. And that he has paid the price for my sin. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ. It's not about what I do. We look forward to that day, not because we say, you know what, I can't wait to get to heaven because I'm going to tell God everything I've done and how worthy I am to stand before Him. Look at me. No, we look forward to that day in anticipation because of what Christ has done. We look forward to that day in anticipation because the Lamb of God was perfect. He was sinless. He was spotless. Yet He laid down His life for sinners like you and I. And he was worthy. He paid the price. We look forward to that day because the one who was worthy died for our sins. He died in our place because he is worthy. We have the present hope and the assurance that we will one day dwell with God. What does it say? God will be with his people. That we will dwell with him and there will be no more sorrow, no more tears, no more death blessed are you who mourn for you shall be comforted in christ we're going to close our time this morning celebrating declaring being reminded of the only one who is worthy the one who, because of his worthy sacrifice, looks at us and says, Blessed are you who's mourned, 
for you shall be comforted. Let's pray. Father, we, we bow. God, before you, the holy God. And God, we know and we recognize our own sinfulness. God, we live in a day that, that just constantly is going to lead us not to think about that, but instead to build our self-esteem and to think highly of ourselves. But God, this morning we bow in full realization that while we were created in your image and while we do indeed have immense and tremendous intrinsic value because of who we are in you, God, in the midst of that, God, we look and we behold our own sin and our own rebellion and the brokenness and the separation that's brought. God, I pray that you would bring 